Hello, and welcome to She Speaks 2, the podcast where we share the stories of African Americans who have made an impact in their communities from the South Carolina Lowcountry and beyond. I am your host, Patricia Blygen Jones. Join us on She Speaks 2. Hello, and welcome to She Speaks to the podcast. I'm your host, Patricia Blygen Jones. Today, my guest is Dr. Nkeshi El Amin. She's a sociology professor at the University of Knoxville in Knoxville, Tennessee. Welcome to She Speaks to Dr. El Amin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's get right to it. Um, I know that you did your dissertation um, entitled A Love Letter to Black Appalachia. Tell us a little bit about Black Appalachia. We always hear about the Appalachian Trail, the Appalachian people, but we never hear about uh, Black people who still reside, who grew up in Appalachia. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, you know, I think a lot of times, like you said, when, when people think of Appalachia, Black people are not, will come, you know, Black people don't come to mind. Uh, we think of hillbillies, we think of coal miners, um, you know, we think of poor white people generally. Uh, but black folks have always been in Appalachia. As long as white folks have been in Appalachia, black folks have been here. Um, uh, you know, when I first started doing research in this area, they were, you know, I would see, um, there used to be debates about whether or not there was slavery. Some people would still say, well, slavery wasn't really, we didn't really have slavery in this region. And that's not true. Slavery was very much alive and well and a shaper of what um, became Appalachia. Um, so there's, so the white folks go, go back into this, in this region for a long time when the settlers were coming through and, um, you know, setting up shop in, in many of these places, they brought with them black folks who were enslaved. Um, you also had three black people, um, in Appalachia prior to the civil war. Um, and then of course, after the civil war, the, um, the uh, industrial revolution with the rise of the railroad and coal mining industries um, drew a lot of people to Appalachia. And Appalachia was actually um, a, a place where a lot of people migrated from the deep south um, and stayed for a while before moving on to uh, other parts of the country, uh, nor northern cities, right? So Appalachia was sort of like a layover, um, great migration destination. So people would come from places like Alabama um, and they would, um, you know, stay for a generation or two in the coal mines of places like um, Harlem, Kentucky. And then they would move on to places like Ohio or New York, Detroit, you know, places, places like that. Um, and so even as, you know, especially as coal, as mining, coal mining kind of decreased and um, the economics of the region changed, um, you know, we saw a huge out-migration of black people from Appalachia. Um, and of course, those things were not the only causes of the migration. There's a lot of um, racial talent and other things that, um, you know, that made this place difficult for black folks to live. You think about places like Irwin, um, where, um, I want to say Irwin, Tennessee, and, and, and Corbin, Kentucky, where there were expulsions of black people. Right. Right. Um, sometimes we think about um, the small populations of, of black people in some of these rural parts of Appalachia and we think well black people just didn't come and when you study the history you know that it's more than that right people were actually expelled from a place right with racial terror um and so that that's the case for a lot of places a lot of places became sundance towns right um, right 
but black folks, you know, left the region for better opportunities in the north and, you know, um, in, the, in more industrialized places, places where there are a lot of factories and things like that. Um, but black people are still in Appalachia, right? So it wasn't that everybody left. You know, some people are still, people are still here um, throughout the region. And a lot of, there are a lot of pockets of people in, in rural and urban Appalachia, right? Um, so, so even though that's the case, we don't see black people represented in the common narratives of this region. Um, you know, we still get that very one, one dimensional of, of Appalachia most times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the work that, that I do, uh, the work that my colleagues do at the black and Appalachian initiative, as well as other scholars is really to highlight the, the history, the contributions, the, the day-to-day realities, um, you know, the, the, um, the cultural, um, uh, I, I guess, the, the, the cultures that exist within Black communities in this region, um, and the ways that Black folks have shaped what is what we what we think of as Appalachia. All right. So tell me, tell us, what are some of the uh, challenges that Black Appalachians face then as well as now? You know, I would think that. Um, one thing that I try not to do is to make, like, the, the place is significant, yes, but when we think about Black experiences in America, they 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 are very similar, right? Right. From place to place, right? Um, so issue, issues of race, they're everywhere. They're all over America, in the north, the south, the deep south, the up, the up south, you know, all of the places that right. we're dealing with a lot of the same issues. One thing that, um, that scholars in this region have uh, sort of pointed out is that if we think about Appalachia as a place where, you know, Appalachia is sort of defined by poverty, right? When you think about like the the re, the Appalachian Regional Commission, which is the sort of the government entity that decides it on what Appalachia is, um, they pretty much define Appalachia by poverty, right? Now, people who live in this region will tell you that, that you know, that's nonsense, but that uh, sort of like that, that that class distinction in this region is sort of the thing that is is um, it is it's the thing that 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 people sort of hold on to. Um, and if you think of Appalachia as being a place where there are a lot of poor people, and you think about adding race as a component on that, black people become a neglected minority within a neglected minority. And that's not um, that was a term that was coined by. Um, some of our early scholars on Black Appalachian studies, uh, Bill Turner and Ed Campbell, they called Black Appalachians um, a, a neglected minority, a neglected minority within a neglected minority. Right. Wow. Right. Um, so you know, if, if you think about, for, for example, in the coal mines when coal started, when the, when um, coal started to decline and companies um, decrease, well, Black folks were the first ones to 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 be let go. Right. Right. Um, and, and that's the case. We can think about that in any circumstance, right? Um, and we think about like uh, in, in a place like Knoxville, an urban center in Appalachia, when we look at the black schools, at the black neighborhoods, right? The schools are, a lot of our schools are struggling. Um, a lot of our schools have been on like uh, failing lists for the city, mm-hmm. for, the, for, the, for the state. Um, our neighborhoods are, are experience a lot of divestment. Right, um, they're being gentrified right now. So I, I think those things you can find parallels to that in just about anywhere in America, right? So that that piece I think 
is is important to point out that the black experience in Knoxville parallel or, or in Appalachia oftentimes parallels black experiences in other places, right? But when you add another layer of class or invisibility on top of that, you know, black folks get pushed further down. Right, right. You're absolutely right. I see that. Tell us about what what's your goal? What do you want the world to know about black folks and Appalachia? Well, I want I want the world to know that black folks have been here, um, always been here, um, have been um, so significant for what this to what this region is today. Um, people think of the small numbers, the small black population as insignificant, and that's not the case, right? But I think about probably the most Appalachian thing, um, you know. Uh, when you think about, for example, Appalachian music, you think about the banjo, right? right. That's an instrument, right? Um, so black people have, have, I mean, we've built America in general, right? So it's the same thing, you know, it's the same thing. So, and I think, you know, a lot of black folks in this region struggle with whether or not they are Appalachian, struggle with their Appalachian identity and, and sort of claiming that identity because they don't often have um, they'll often feel like a sense of belonging here. And so to, for me, whether or not they claim Appalachian or not is not as important. What is important is that that that, that you know that you can if you want to, right? That right. you belong to this place as much as anybody else does. And I want Black folks to feel comfortable and to feel um, like they can stay here and make this place work for them because for a lot of folks a lot of young folks especially they don't feel like they can stay home they don't feel like they can stay um in a lot of the small communities even the large ones like like in knoxville right a lot of our young people are leaving because they don't see opportunities for themselves here and i want them to stay to fight to make those opportunities better so that the next generation don't have to okay so, I mean, so how do you think that, you know, how, how would you achieve that? How do you make um, more opportunities? How do you make it attractive um, enough for young people to want to say, hey, wait a minute, we've got good right here in our own community. You know, what can we, you know, maybe we should just, you know, pitch our tent here. What what What's the incentive? I mean. Well, I don't think, I don't, I know that the, 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 the ones who are, who have, the power to to make those changes are the people in the, the, in our political leaders, our economic leaders, and so what I want to do is to is to is to do my part to to hold them accountable, to push them to to represent Black folks and Black needs in this region. That's why I I'm involved in in politics. That's why I try to be um, you know I try to know what's going on in my city and to participate when I can. Um, but outside of that, I try to hold space for black folks. Like, you know, with the bottom, for example, um, the bottom is a, is a space that I um, founded last year um, in Knoxville. And uh, one of the things that, for example, when I thought about um, themes that I found in my research were that black folks in Knoxville felt a sense of loss of place or feelings of being out of place, right? And, and by that, I mean, you know, going back, as far as other renewal, but even before that, like there's always there's, there's this constant attack on black places and black spaces, right? Destruction of black neighborhoods, of schools, schools have been closed, um, uh, businesses, so many black businesses destroyed or, or gone. Um, you know, people will tell you 
uh, we used to have this or we used to have that, right? That's sort of the, the narrative that I heard is just like this rupture in black people's relationship to place or, or people just feeling out of place, constantly being in experiences where you are the only black face in the room, right? right. Or, or um, and, and that could be at work, it could be at the grocery store, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just a, a huge part of the experience here. And so at the bottom, what I wanted to do was to really create a space where black folks can come and feel seen and heard and share with each other and laugh and talk and um and and build and read it you know all of the things that um that we need and we that that we need space for if you if you are a black business that needs a space to, to test out your idea you know here's a space right do a, pop -up a safe or, space a safe space exactly exactly and so and so that's what i that's what i try to do um uh, I try to hold my politicians accountable where I can. You know, I try to show up for things. Um, and I try to hold space for black folks, you know. And then, of course, I teach. So that's how, that's that's my contribution. But I think that we all have a role to play. And I think that our, our politicians are especially important. The people who run the major institutions in our, in our cities and our towns, um, you know, job opportunities, for black folks in this region. I mean, Knoxville has a 17% black population, but it's what, 40%? The poverty rate among the black community is 40%? Right? That is ridiculous. It is. Uh, it's high. So, yeah, it's, 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 really, it's really high. And so those are things that, you know, make this place hard for, to thrive, right? Um, To do our part and then, of course, to hold other people accountable, especially the people that we put into power, you know. Yeah, we do have to hold our elected officials accountable um, because the task, it, it's not a one woman or one man show. I think in order for change to be affected, uh, you're going to need the whole community. You're going to need power. You're going to need people to see the bigger picture in that um you know, Appalachia doesn't just belong to one segment or group of people. Um, exactly. it, you know, it belongs to everyone. And so, no, that's a very good point. Now you're, um, originally from Guyana, South America. So t tell us about that. How did you, um, come to be in Knoxville? What, how did you end up being here? So I, um, I was born in Guyana and, um, I lived there until I was 12 and then, um, I was living with my mom at the time, and my my parents weren't married, and my dad was living here. I think maybe living in the states for for most of my life. I don't, I don't know how long. Uh, but my dad was living here, and um, so I came to live with my dad when I was twelve. I grew up from there on in the Atlanta area. Um, lived in Riverdale, Georgia. And then uh, I went to college in, 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 in Atlanta. I went to Agnes Scott College, just a small liberal arts women's college there. Um, and after college, I was ready to leave. <laughs> and so uh, I went to graduate school in New York. I went to Syracuse, New York, okay. graduate school, Syracuse University. Yes. Um, and then I lived in New York City for a little bit, just kind of trying to find my way. And New York was very um, was very difficult, very frustrating. I couldn't find work, or you know, at least not the kind of work that I wanted to do. And so I figured I'd go back to school. And so I applied for um, a PhD program at, at UT and got in. Uh, UT was one of very few um, 
uh, universities that offered an environmental sociology program, and that's what I wanted to do at the time. So I was studying um, coastal flooding in Guyana, and so I wanted to continue that research. And so I, I, I came to UT, but then, like I said, when I got here, I started noticing things that um, were just really interesting to me, and I wanted to know more. So I kind of pivoted my research and um, started doing work on, on Black Knoxville and Appalachia. Okay. When you think about Black Appalachia, uh, what brings you joy? When you think about that community, what brings you joy? The people, the people, you know, um, when I think about, say, for example, outside of Knoxville, if, if, you know, when I, when we go to small towns, small communities throughout the region, and when I say we, I mean like my Black and Appalachian crew, when we go into certain places, you know, we're just received so well by the people. They're so excited to talk with us and to share their stories and invite us, and it feels like family. And I, and I don't know how, if that is just like a coincidence, I don't know what it is, but every time we go somewhere, we are just welcomed with open arms. You know, one time we were out not very far from here in Strawberry Plains area, just a little bit past Strawberry Plains, and, and we saw a friend of uh, one of our team members saw a church out there, and he noticed that it was an AME Zion church, but um, it's not a church that he was familiar with. So we thought we would just drive by and just check it out because, you know, of course we're collecting the stories of all these little pocket communities. Right. And so we stopped by that church and um, I was like, y'all, we can't be snooping around a black church. Somebody's going to come out. And sure enough, the lady across the street came out on her front porch and she was an older woman, probably nice. in her 80s or something. And she came out on her front porch and sat down so that we know that she's watching us. And so there you, you know, go. We went across the street to, to, to talk with her and just like, you know, introduce ourselves and let her know what we were doing. And it was just, and this was in the beginning of the pandemic too. This was, um, this was last year, probably around this time. And, and she was, um, you know, she, she, she told us to sit down and told us some stories about the church and, and her family. And, um, you know, it was just really cool. And she was like, she told us that later that day, they were going to be having a, a cookout, you know, right. Right. There. Right. Right. And she just, you know, she just kept saying, y'all come back now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was just so cool to me that, that, you know, she just welcomed us in and shared her story. And it's the same thing in Knoxville. You know, one of the reasons why it's so hard for me to leave Knoxville is because I feel a part of a community here. Um, you know, people people show up for me in so many ways. It, it's unbelievable. And, it, and I'm so grateful. You know, I'm so grateful for the folks that are pouring into me into into the work that I'm doing um, and building the bottom even, you know, it's just, I can't even tell you the ways that people have supported me. Um, And so that's what I love the most about this region. It's just the the communities. Once you get in, you know, they're closed knit communities and sometimes it's hard to get in, but once you're in, you're in. in. And you, and you know, I think people uh, generally people want to share their stories but they have to be willing to trust you and they have to be comfortable with you. And so, you know, the, the lady across the street from the church, you know, the captain of the neighborhood watch, I'm sure uh, she can tell you everything that goes on and who drives down the street. Um, people like that want to share, 
but you right. they but they must feel comfortable and they must trust you and so i think it's important the work that you're doing is important to collect as many of those stories as possible because a lot of times i think we get so far removed um there's the general thought of oh well that's not really that particular culture is not really acceptable to the wider culture you know and so well we're just going to ignore it until it just disappears and i think that's a tragedy because there's so much richness and in the stories i mean no matter where you are in the country uh, black or white there's just so much the 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 history is so rich of uh, people's experiences and i think those stories must be captured and they must be told and they must be preserved um Talk to us about your sewing, your sewing project, the, the, the sewing group that you have in Knoxville. Yeah, so sewing, sewing was a um, was really, when I graduated a couple of years ago, I wanted to do something fun. You know, I was finished with, you know, years of studying and I thought I want to do something fun that would be a way to give back to the community, you know, and just kind of like decompress. And so I thought I would do the sewing program. Um, And so my idea was to do, teach kids how to sew and then teach them entrepreneurial skills so that they can start their own micro businesses. I've always been an entrepreneur. I've always had some hustle, some side hustle of some sort. Like when I was in college, I made jewelry. When I was in graduate school, I learned how to sew and I made bags and clothes um and so i thought you know if it would be so cool for kids to learn how to sew but also learn how to how to run a little business so that they can be you know make the money that they use for college or whatever right and so um i started that program it was a month long i didn't have anything anything didn't know what i was all i had was a concept and um i just put it out there and people showed up you know, in so many ways, donated supplies, um, uh, sewing machines. Um, you know, I had a, a, somebody called the, 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 I don't know, the lunch department that gave kids lunch, like gift program lunch, lunches for school. And she was like, the deadline is passed, but we'll make it work for you, you know, because we, we, we love this idea. And Beautiful. And that we were talking to was like, I sew too, and I have a bunch of fabric that I can donate. And she donated that fabric. And, and somebody was like, oh, well, you need a refrigerator for the lunches. I'll rent you a fridge for two months, you know. And somebody said, oh, well, you don't have a space to do this. I'll give you a space in my building, and you can do the program here. I mean, it was just the most, um, you know, such an outpouring of love. Um, and, and community support mm-hmm. and that program got off and 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 you know somebody said well I'll write a, a, a report on it I'll do a news report on this and so we had a couple of journalists write about the program and it got all over the world and um, we got went viral on, on one of the news channels and so it was just it was just a really amazing program it kind of took on a life of its own um, you know but the idea is to teach kids how to sew and then bring in different um, business leaders and other leaders in the community to teach them entrepreneurial skills, to teach them leadership skills, and things like that. And it, it, and they, the program culminates with a, a market day where they take their products and they sell them to the community. And people show up. You know, we had over 100 people show up on the first one um, to, to buy the products. Even during the pandemic, 
you know, we had about a good uh, 75 to 100 people show up and all the kids sold out of their product. So it, it, it's really, um, it's a real special program. And pretty soon we'll be gearing up for this summer. It sounds like an excellent program. And how long has it been in existence? So we're entering in our third year now. Oh, so question. Mm-hmm. Is there like, I mean, is there like a cutoff point as far as age or is there, is it open to anyone regardless so of? It's, it's, it's generally for black kids um, from 12 to 16. Um, sometimes there are a few outliers, but that's the general demographic that we, that we go for. And it's not, you know, it's not only girls. We have boys in the program or, you know, ch- children that identify whatever gender Um it's, it's totally open. Beautiful. Dr. El what do you want us to remember about Black Appalachia? <laughs> um, we're resilient people. Black folks in, in the mountains are resilient. And on that note, we're going to end. Dr. El thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for inviting me. It was fun. Take care. You too. Thanks for joining us this week on She Speaks Too. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook at She Speaks Too. As always, subscribe to the show to catch every new episode and leave us a review so we can continue to bring you fresh content. See you next week.